All right, this is episode 32. I'm back in the saddle again. I took an extended period off from doing podcasts uh, just due to my uh, hectic, busy schedule and uh, cleared some time now and uh, back at it. I recorded this episode a few months ago and uh, I've been sitting on it for a little while until I was sure that I was starting back up again. And uh, I'm excited about a new season of shows for you. This show features Mark Bow from the hit TV show Barnyard Builders. I uh, love this show. I watch it all the time uh, on the DIY network. And if you haven't seen it, make sure that you spend some time looking it up uh, and you'll be hooked for sure. Uh, we talked over the phone and had a great conversation. I'm sure you're going to enjoy it. Welcome back and enjoy episode 32. <laughs> Hey, Darren, this is Mark Bowe. Hey, Mark, how are you? I'm doing great. How are you? I'm uh, I'm great. So uh, thank you very much for uh, giving me a call. I really appreciate uh, you taking the time and uh, joining me on my podcast. Yeah, you're welcome, and thanks for asking. Yeah, how's weather? You're in West Virginia now? I'm in West Virginia, and it's just, um, you know, humid, hot. Yep, typical summer stuff. Yeah, we're good go to texas and it's going to be between 107 and 110 oh gosh and yeah we're going to film an episode down there and so we're all a little concerned we leave here this weekend for that yeah that's you just don't get used to that type of weather um no no and then you know you put up lights and uh, they got bugs big enough down there to swallow you yeah <laughs> that's for sure well, congratulations on the show and and your business and everything you've been doing. You must be uh, pretty ecstatic nowadays, and I know it comes from a lot of hard work. You can tell that you, uh, you and your team, especially yourself, must have long days and lots of hard work ahead of you. Indeed, we do, but we've got a lot of that behind us too. <laughs> yeah, well, that's that's for sure. It, it always makes a difference, uh, but to make things continue, it certainly takes takes a lot of work and. I appreciate. It. I've, I've watched the show a bunch of times. I must say, it's probably one of my one of my favorite shows to to watch on TV. I think it's it's you've done a great job with it. Thank you. What we do is such a niche, um, so it's only a fraction of a percentage of the building market. Yeah. And so, if you think about a lot of CEOs and and people that really want to uh, invest in and and kind of have an heirloom to live in or a, a place as a getaway. They're not necessarily watching our show. Oh yeah. So where I get you know inundated with calls is more people wanting to sell me stuff. Oh, I see that. Yeah. And so, so that's the that's one thing. So it doesn't necessarily help me on a marketing end of it. Um, number two is is that there's only six of us. Yeah. So it's not like we can streamline this and roll product out the door. And so that's the kind of the thing about: it. are you a craftsman or are you a manufacturing plant? Exactly, yeah. And I think, um, you know, it's like, you know, like a chef, I guess. If you ask them, if they, how many people have you, you know, going to chef school, somebody says, how many people do you want to love to cook? And, you know, they raise their hand. And then the, the other ones say, how, how many of you want to make money? And, you know, they, the ones that raise their hands are told to open a McDonald's franchise. Yeah. So it's, it's really hard to... Uh, and so the third thing that that hurts us is that, you know, if you think about it from a business perspective, like product placement, um, advertisers, you know, we don't have a lot of stains and paints and furniture 
and a lot of other things that you can buy in box stores. So we're pretty hard, um, even though we've got, you know, number one ratings, we're pretty hard to, to categorize yeah. um, and, and obtain sponsorship unless it's like heavy equipment or, or something like that. But ironically, you know, we, the TV thing, we're doing so much TV that it, it almost takes away from us being able to uh, really do what we love and, and put product out the gates. Yeah, I totally understand that. That makes that makes perfect sense. And like you said, there's only six of you, and it's probably not something that you want 40 of you because then you start really losing control of which what you like to do and, and how good you do it. I think keeping it tight yeah, and small. Tight. Yeah. Sure. I mean, even pioneers, they're... There, there may have been 40 of them lifting the barn in the air, but there probably was not 40 people cutting the same notches. Yeah. Because out of that 40, everybody's going to do it differently. So, so there was, you know, there were people that specialized in that, and that's kind of like we are. It's kind of funny. I always have clients say, well, you know, I'm willing to help. And if somebody tells me they're willing to help, I just raise the price 10 grand because I'm going to be babysitting them the whole time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I can see that for sure. Did you grow up in West Virginia? You always been there. I did grow up in West Virginia, so I'm I'm a native, and you know I love this state, and I think that you know one of the primary reasons for us to do this whole TV show was that we get to portray our state and the Appalachian heritage in a more positive light because that's not something you see on TV. We, you know, hillbillies are, are associated with rednecks, and you know, there's the it, it seems like that a lot of shows um, really try to portray us in a very stupid and, you know, inbred type of culture. And yeah. I think we're all sick of it. I love to say it's so beautiful. You ever been here? Yeah, a bunch of times. I, I tour with, uh, I'm in the music industry, so I've I've toured through West Virginia a bunch of times, and uh, I love it there. It's it's I live in the country and, you know, certainly like that lifestyle and, and prefer a more laid back approach to life. And I like not seeing my neighbor or, you know, I was certainly a rural fellow. I've been growing up on a farm since I was a little kid. So certainly yeah. the way I like to live. <laughs> we love to see our neighbors, you know, so we, we, um, we love the interaction and in the small towns, whenever you, you just know that like if your car breaks down and you're on the side of the road, somebody's definitely going to stop and ask you if you need a ride or if you're okay. And that is, a re and then we're surrounded by all these mountains and the familiarity and the safety and security from a lot of the outside world. So there's a lot of heritage that has been preserved here in the way we talk and, um, how we treat our families. Yeah. Uh, I could see that. What did you think about when you were younger of what you wanted to do when you, you grew up? So I grew up in this trailer park and, you know, in, in front of me is um, a little bit of land and a river yeah. and, and then a mountain and railroad tracks. And then behind me was um, uh, another railroad tracks, um, what we called the hard road because all the other roads were dirt. So we had the hard road and then a mountain and flanked on one side on the other side was, was a Creek. And it seemed like everybody worked in the coal mines or around the coal industry. So unfortunately I didn't really have any dream outside of that little area. I had no idea yeah. um, until I went to college and realized that what I wanted to do was 
an entrepreneur. And I remember the professor in business school, he, he asked me uh, what I wanted to be. And I said, I want to make money. And he said, uh, well, then you, you want to be an entrepreneur. And I thought he insulted me, you know, because yeah. <laughs> I didn't know what it was. Yeah. And he said, no, what do you want to do? And I said, no, I want my job to be figuring out ways to make money. So I think from from onset, I've always been an out-of-the-box thinker. I just never got the chance to peek out of the box. Yeah. You were coal miner for uh, a while there. What what was that like? Yeah, you know, the, the thing about, um, you know, being a coal miner is that it, it's ironically, it was one of the um, – it's where I learned teamwork and it's where I learned appreciation for the people you work with because every day you go underground in a coal mine, your life is in danger and you go underground with um, 10 or 12 guys and you go underground and you don't come back out for nine hours until your ship's over. So you depend on people to tell you when there's bad top, which is, you know, the roof. So you just cut the, the uh, the coal seam and you take a little bit of rock and sometimes you'd be working in 15 feet of height and there would be a lot of uh, shale and rock that, that would be able to fall down and so you really depended on your co-worker to protect you and so any kind of politics um, any kind of uh, religion and, and all the other stuff that are hot button issues were discussed in the bathhouse but once everybody turned their lights on and went underground, it was all for one. You know, the um, a lot of the coal miners um, came from different backgrounds and, and different places all over the world. So you had these coal camps, and you would have, you know, Italians and 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 Polish folks, and you know, speaking different languages. And um, what was interesting about that is that the same theory applied that even though there was a language barrier. Um, or a racial barrier, it's still 12 guys going underground to watch out for one another and to make a living for their family. So hard work was the common thread that has sort of um, weaved its way through the coal mines in that particular culture. How many years did you do that for? I worked underground, um, I guess, starting in my late teens, and, and that's how I paid for college. So I worked underground until I made $10,000. Yeah. And when I made that, I went to uh, West Virginia University, and I would go to school there until I ran out of money. And I worked for three years total um, as an underground coal miner. And then I, when I got my degree, I ended up with a master's degree. I ended up going back to work for the coal company as a uh, safety director and then later as a human resource manager and then you know, kind of a combination of both. So quite a while uh, you spent in that in that industry. Uh, yeah, yeah, you know, my father told my too. And so, like I said, everybody we knew, you know, grew up uh, around it. So, you know, if you ask me how long I spent in that industry, I guess since I was able to uh, walk the railroad tracks to school. <laughs> yeah. What did you excel in in school? What were your subjects that you you did well in? Um, I think I've always done well in thinking out of the box. Yeah. I mean, it was, I, I always, you know, going through business school, I mean, you know, who wants to do accounting? Yeah. Um, who wants to uh, do trig um, or, you know, or biology? There's things that I did not excel at because, you know, it, it requires a different brain than what I'm geared with. 
Um, so I excelled at the things that would allow me to think and allow me to present ideas. And I love going through those business challenging um, business exercises where you have to develop models and and um, and present to the class. And my goal would always be to figure out a different way to interact with the people. I was all about the management of people and empowering those people to be the best that they could be and while still yet turning a profit. That was my whole goal of every exercise we did. Yeah. When you got out of school there, what did you, what was your first thing as far as being an entrepreneur that you, you got into? Well, so I was, the funny thing is that I, I found this thing called the internet Yeah. <laughs> and I went to work for this company. It was an insurance company. I had taken a job in Knoxville, Tennessee, and it lasted about a year and it, they were an insurance broker. And so they wanted me as kind of the, 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 the person that would, be able to say this is an acceptable risk or this is not based on uh, what the coal mines look like and, you know, um, look at all their accidents and all their equipment. And so I was more of a loss control guy, you know, and, and I remember them giving me a laptop and telling me, now you have to work 40 hours a week. And I thought, man, I've got a part-time job, you know, cause I'd always work more than 40 hours a week. So, um, I remember going through Knoxville I remember going to Knoxville and seeing uh, some um, Asian students and thinking, man, I, I wish I could talk to them. You know, what's the barrier? What's keeping me from talking to them? And they love ginseng, and I love to dig ginseng. I want to have a discussion. So then I get on the Internet, um, and it was kind of crazy. You know, you dial up, and it was slow as could be. Yeah. And I started sending... Uh, faxes and I started sending notes to pharmaceutical companies in Japan to tell them that, you know, we had um, wild grown American ginseng. So while I was working for this insurance company 40 hours a week, I took the other 40 hour week yeah. and I tried to figure out ways to make money using this uh, new internet deal. <laughs> That's great. Actually, uh, ginseng growing all around us here. It's a, it's a big, crop in my area right now yeah yeah and there's a there's a big difference in in what's called wild grown versus you know what's cultivated yeah and and in the eastern culture you know wild grown with a lot of growth rings is where it's at that's what they're looking for okay and so you know i could dig it and i i remember talking to people about setting up scales and measuring and becoming a buyer and um you know that was all fun until you know, someone says politely, um, this is my territory and I'll kill you if you continue to operate. <laughs> you know, and I was, I was 20, 25 and I, I said, okay, well, I'm out of this business. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, this... yeah. So then the next thing I'm taking down barns on the weekends and selling the wood. <laughs> so how, yeah. How did that come about? You just, that just kind of came up as a, another kind of part-time thing to do while you're, you know, wanting to work more than 40 hours? Yeah, it, it actually did. I was underground with a guy and he said he was going to take me on a barn. Uh, we were working six uh, days a week. He says, Hey man, I'm going to take down a barn this weekend. Would you mind giving me a hand? And I said, yeah, I'll give you a hand. And so I took the lumber from it and I sold it and it, it I made $1,700. It didn't take long for the wheels to start turning on that. So the next thing I know, I start, you know, buying 
old buildings and taking deposits and on my weekends, uh, or, you know, day and a half off, I would, you know, try to tear down buildings and deliver them to people all over the country. So I invested in a bunch of buildings, a log truck, quit my job, went broke, and then realized, man, I need to think that through a little better. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I guess, to work at the coal company. Yep. <laughs> it yeah. always, always goes back to that. Yeah. I went right back to it. And, um, and then I thought it through a little bit better and, you know, uh, spend another year working as a human resource director and which was a lot of fun, you know, interviewing people for jobs was great. But once I, you know, figured out and streamlined, um, how I wanted to be in the antique lumber business, um, I did it all while working and, um, and was able to better plan. And, and I've been in business now since, uh, 96. Oh, that's excellent. The first thing you, you really started was the, the antique cabins and barns. That's the kind of business you started back then. Yes. Yeah. Yep. That's it. And is that is that same kind of location you're in now? Um, you know, I started um, remotely, and so I started doing everything from my house. Uh, I, I was single, and I had I say a house. I had an apartment building with with a bed and a desk, a, a table. And a chair that smelled like pickles. Yeah. <laughs> and all I did, <laughs> all I did was work. That's all I did. And I had, I'll never forget, I, I, I had 32 pairs of underwear. And I knew that when I got to that 31st pair, <laughs> that it's time to do laundry. So I felt like that I, I, I was wasting time doing laundry. So I, I would put it all in a couple of trash bags and go drop it off. And somebody would do my laundry and I'd go pick it up and I'd, I'd pay, you know, 50 or $60. And, I was done and I could have gotten a lot more use out of my time. So that's how it all started was in this really terrible department. Yeah. That uh, was just, it had absolutely no personality whatsoever. It was just, it was a place to work, a place to eat, a place to sit and sleep. That was it. Well, I guess you look back, I mean, it's, it's like anything it's, you really have to put in those hours of work to be successful. And I think I look around at a lot of young people nowadays and um, I mean, there's a lot of people who have that work ethic, but I think there's almost more that, that don't, they don't seem to want to put those hours in and, and work really hard. And, and you really have to take that time. And, you know, I've had the same type of life. You have to work really hard, still work 12, 16 hour days, now and and just you just keep going but i i think it's part partially a a personality thing i mean you either kind of have that in you or you don't you, you feel that way i feel that it is um in yeah. some part the, the dna but i also feel like that um my generation which is generation x has just and and certainly the baby boomer generation that that you know, may own some companies at this point i think that it's up to the generations to try to come together and figure out how to um, describe the work ethic. And, and I think it's up to us to bring the learning to the kids in a way that they understand it. And I refer to them as kids, but you know, there's been a lot of years where there's been all a lot of um, discommunication through the use of phones and, and, um, you know, smartphones and other devices, but yeah. I feel like that we've got to be able to take the learning to them and the job experience to them in a way that they understand it. Yeah. And I think that falls partly on the employers. It falls partly on uh, parents 
And, you know, it all starts with, did you, do you cut your own grass? Um, do, do you clean your room? Do you do the necessary chores that it takes for you to sustain a um, clean and healthy life under the, under one roof? You yeah. know, and so that example has to be set early. And, and then you build on that. And, and you have to take those, um, you have, like I said, you have to take the learning to them. So kids now, I feel like that they understand what we're doing. But there's an intimidation factor about going to work, not ever having done something. So I feel like that there's a real gap right now in, in maybe some virtual reality technology that we can say, here's what actually happens at um, at this place of at this particular place of employment, you know, wherever that is. And we start to educate them and let them see what actually happens. So, yeah, we just got to figure out a better way to bring it to them. Because I can't imagine that there is, there is, um, they're not all lazy. You know, I had great experiences this summer with our interns. Yeah. And I just figured out how to get the best out of them. Yeah. And they were, they were in high school. Yeah. And I think the expectation is that you have to be successful right out of the gate. I mean, I think you see so much of that on the internet. People are, internet sensation or they can be a Instagram star or, and all those type of things. And I think people look at that and thinking, well, that's, you become successful uh, and, you know, start making a lot of money really easy. And that's far and few between for those things to happen. And, but it looks like it's just everybody. So it does. yeah. And it, it, it's, it's kind of a false, I mean, I primarily work in the music industry and it's, it's, it's sort of like becoming a famous singer. I mean, there's only a small, small percentage of those people who try to become successful actually make it. It's like small, small. Um, and it's the same with the internet. I mean, it's, it's, you see those people who, you know, all of a sudden become a star because they play video games online or something and you think, Oh, I could do that. And it's like, well, you could, but you know, if you looked at the facts and look at the percentages and said, well, there's 1% chance of you making, uh, being successful at this. You'd, you'd think twice about it. I don't think there's enough kind of stats for young kids to kind of look at and saying, what are the percentages of us actually being successful at this? And if they knew what those percentages were, they'd be like, oh, okay, well, let's, let's try something else because it just doesn't always make well, sense. Uh you know, the thing about that, that youthful uh, vigor that we all miss <laughs> is that you do think that everything's possible. And with the constant infeed of uh, information of this person successful and this person, you know, you take that little small world that, that I grew up in and you, you take, you know, the, the only, you know, couple of the block radius that a lot of kids know. And there's all this information coming to them from all over the U.S., all over the world for that matter on who has been successful and what you don't see is how many people fail that. And, you know, I always tell people that if you want to work really, really hard and you want to go at it for 10 years, you'll be an overnight success. Yeah, <laughs> that's true. As far as the TV show goes, how did, how did that, I'm, I'm sure you've told the story a few times, but how did that come about to start on the talks of, of doing some, some TV work? Um, I had an office in this little small town of Lewisburg, West Virginia. And um, a guy was on vacation. He came in my office and he said he was looking for a cabin for upstate New York. 
um, just a place for, you know, him and his uh, family to go to. And, um, I said, you know, I'm so sorry. I can't meet with you right now. I said, I've got a client coming in. Um, but you're welcome to go up to our boneyard and meet the guys and, and they can, they have the same knowledge that I do about pricing and, um, the process. So the guy goes up there and he meets the guys and he comes back and he said, man, your people are incredible. And, and so I said, well, thank you. You know, that's, I, I appreciate that. I'm glad you noticed that we're, you know, a very strong team and, and a family. And, and he says, now tell me your story. So I told him about, you know, wanting to be an entrepreneur and, um, working underground in the mines. And he said, well, I'm a filmmaker. He said, I work for a guy named Ken Burns. And, and I said, well, that's great. He said, I went to Juilliard and you know, all oh, that's even better. Yeah. Now tell me what that means. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah. Who's, who's Ken Burns and, and, uh, who's Julie? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so really, um, so anyway, he, he proceeds to tell me and, um, he said he wanted to do a project on his own dime and, and kind of start getting himself out there as a director and producer of, of content that told stories. And he asked if he could follow us around for three days. Um, I had a really good feeling about the guy. I just, he just felt like a neighbor. He, he just felt real. Yeah. And we all signed the waivers. We let him film us for three days. Uh, that was in 2004 and it sat on the shelves for 10 years. Um, you know, he shopped that, that little documentary around. It was a 20-minute show. And he shopped that around for 10 years. And the networks would not buy us as a TV show because we did not have enough drama. Oh, yeah. And, and I thought, man, I mean, we're, you know, we're, I totaled a truck in that episode. I didn't mean to, but you know, I, I drove through a Creek that was, um, not as deep the day before. Yeah. <laughs> and, and yeah, so I, I did that. And I mean, we had a, a window bust on a piece of equipment. It rained. We had to build a road for a quarter mile to get into the cabin. And, you know, I mean, it was just, a, it was crazy what we were doing that was natural drama, but yet we all stayed positive and, and laughed and, it wasn't enough drama. And so I think after 10 years of people seeing enough, of enough drama, um, DIY network said, okay, we love these guys. We'll take them just like they are. And it was, it was a real out of the box decision for the network. Yeah. And fortunately they believed in us and, um, the my buddy, uh, Rick Kaplan, um, he followed through on his promise. And he, he made us, you know, who we are, which is just who we are. Yeah, and it makes sense now because you look at, you know, the shows kind of in your style of, if you want to say home improvement, you're not really home improvement, but that kind of general TV-esque things, the shows that are really successful now are the ones that there isn't drama. It's more about the friendship. It's more about the positive uh, aspects of, of everything that everyone's doing. And, you know, it was probably just waiting for that time to come around for your show to, to fit in into the market. I think that that's one of the reasons we're successful is that uh, we all remind somebody of a person in their family, you know, like everybody's got a cousin or a brother that looks like one of us or that acts like one of us, or somebody has a dad or a, or a grandpa or, you know, we all remind between the six of us, we tend to resonate with somebody in the family. Yeah. And 
And what's really amazing is that our audience is split between genders. And so we sometimes if we get fortunate enough to get those demographics back, and, and of course, I always look at Facebook and other social media to kind of gauge and and try to determine some sociographics. And we've got kids that love our show and people that write us about, you know, their husband or, or father being in the hospital and the only thing he wanted to do and kept him alive was watching Barnwood Builders and that's all he wanted to watch. Yeah. And so it, it it really dawns on us that we're um I think there's enough bad stuff in the news every day. There's enough drama every day in the world that getting to see us do things and not discuss hot button issues and just go to work and have fun is a refreshing concept. And and it really seems that everybody you see on the show is that exactly the way they are if you were to meet them. That's, you know, I think it that's is. very refreshing. You believe that and I obviously believe that's the way it is. You you know, if someone like Johnny Jett, you believe that's exactly the way he is and um Oh yeah. Yeah. He doesn't change. You know, Johnny is is um you know, let's face it, Johnny's the star of the show. Let's <laughs> <laughs> say this. Johnny's the fan favorite, you know, so it, it's, it's my company and uh, I am a producer and, but, and, and I guess hosty, if you will, but, but the fan favorite is Johnny Jett. I mean, you know, he, he checks all the boxes to be a lovable person. Yeah. He, he's, he's a veteran, you know, he's a, a grandpa, he's 70 years old. He, you know, operates the equipment. He's got a great sense of humor. He's got strong faith. And those are things that people are hungry for, you know? And so a little bit of Johnny goes a long way to making you feel good. And he is that person, you know, I mean, he is, I've known Johnny for 23 years and, um, he has not changed. Johnny lives, does he still live in, in Kentucky and commutes kind of comes up for a few days and goes back home. Is that how that works with him? Yeah, we've got uh, Johnny and Sherman both are from Kentucky. Uh, Johnny, you know, we have a four-day work week, and so, you know, family is important to all of us. So we we work four 10-hour shifts or four 12-hour shifts, whatever it takes to get done. Yeah. And uh, and then Sherman now lives in Pennsylvania. He he, he went up there and fell in love on the job we had. Oh, yeah. (laughs) And he, he stayed, so we say he's from Pennsylvania. (laughs) <laughs> that's great so what what type of drive is that for the uh the guys how many hour drive for them to get to uh five to five to five and a half hours and i have a little place for them to stay in yeah and um and they just love it you know they love it and and we balance it out between how much they need to be here and how much they need to be there yeah and you know i think one thing that goes unnoticed with with the show and it'd be hard to explain to anybody who doesn't have a show is how much time um, and how much commitment our family has to make to make all this possible. And Sherman's wife's got to be patient enough and, and Johnny's wife and family and um, for us to go on the road for, you know, four days at a time and, and be okay with it. Yeah. There are support system. I mean, there's times when I just hit the wall, you know, I've worked, too long i've been under too much stress you know we have to produce you know two episodes a month maybe i don't have that many projects going and i'm scrambling to try to make something happen and sometimes when i come home and crash um there's nothing better than to have my wife there 
you know, and and a shoulder to to lean on because we all hit the wall yeah. and we all need a place to vent and and a place to feel comfortable. So when you were started filming, and I'm sure it happens now, do you find now that when you're filming, are you just working and cameras are working around you? Or are you finding that you, you're finding more time now to to set up a shot or set up a scene or set up something? Um, has it changed over the years? Um, or is it pretty much kind of go in there, do your job, and they work around uh, your work? Well, you know, it, it, the funny thing is, is that most of the folks that are in that line of work producing or sound or grip or, you know, other you know, directors, they're not blue collar. Um, they're not used to that kind of, of construction. Yeah. They're used to making good television and, or good movies. And so fortunately we have a crew that has, um, that blue collar work ethic. So, but you know, they live in Brooklyn or they live in, you know, Austin or, or wherever. Um, and we all come together and make this show. So in the beginning, I was having to say, okay, there's going to be a big crash. You guys need to set up. This is where the roof's going to fall. And then eventually they started to understand. And as we got better on camera, they started anticipating where the crashes were going to be, where to, where to position the cameras and, and got familiar with what questions to ask. So they have learned so much. And then we've grown to make TV easier. We now know how to answer questions sometimes before they even ask the question. Yeah. The one thing I like about the show is certainly the, you know, the questions and the little talks in between shots that those are always very interesting and, and kind of the humor between all you guys. And, you know, it really flows well. It doesn't ever, you know, feel like it's okay. We're going to set up this shot to talk about this. It all feels very, very natural where you see some shows we feel like, okay, they've cut away. Um, we're going to talk about what's going on and it feels like it's super scripted. And obviously your show feels very natural and you, it feels like you guys know exactly what to talk about. Well, you know, I think I have to give that out to um, the, the producers and the directors and the camera folks that we have because they're our friends. So we're all staying at the same hotel so that, you know, literally at the end of the day in the parking lot, we have a grill going and, and, you know, we're, we're frying up food or we're going out to eat and we're then in the parking lot sitting on tailgates, throwing hatchets and tomahawks and carving and, and playing music. And, and so when you, when you get that kind of brotherhood together, it, it's unfortunate that, that the TV shows, the, the six of us, but there's another, you know, 10 people making the TV show that we are equally as close with. Yeah, and that's I think been the, one of the primary reasons that our show's been successful is that we have just fantastic friends that make the show. You know, you spend a lot of time with them, so you'd have to. First of all, you want people there that you that you like and get along with. For me, being on the road with a bunch of people and a crew and sound people, lighting people, and all that, you you get pretty pretty close to everybody. Um, but then everyone goes their separate ways. I always find, I'm not sure if it's the same for you. You, you're pretty intense with the crew and the people you're working with for a certain amount of time. And then filming is done and tours done. Whatever you want to talk about it, everyone goes home and then it's, everyone goes back to their, their regular thing. But you know, they remain friends for a long time, but it seems like you have like a, a family life and then a, 
a TV life of, of friends that you work with and they're, they, it's just as important, but they, they're separated once you're done, done your work. Yeah. And fortunately for us that, you know, we still, you know, the crew, me, me and my guys get to still hang out again the next week and, and we'll see the film crew in another, you know, two weeks or another week. We'll, we'll see them again and we'll pick up where we left off. And I think that's a real testament to hiring good people and, and everybody committed to the same goal of making a real television show that portrays real people, um, hardworking guys doing, you know, something a lot of people don't know how to do. Yeah. That's great. So the content's interesting. Yeah. The, the content's interesting. Um, the film crew, you know, they have a, a real um, passion for what they're doing. So the pride in their work is only seen is, is not as noticed as ours is because we're the ones on camera, but you know, our director of photography, he, is adamant about using the certain cameras and and adamant about uh, certain shots and and light and he manages to work all of that in while we're working. Yeah, and 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 they're all on headsets communicating and making sure that it's all one choreographed um, dance. And it's just beautiful to be there on 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 the set to see everybody working and there's 17 or 20 people or however many there. Um, and then it goes back to the edit bays and, you know, then they've got to take, um, you know, hundreds of hours of footage and narrow that down to 40 minutes. Yeah. Which is, that's always, I find it's, it's gotta be an incredible amount of work to go through all that footage and, and narrow all that stuff down and, and I always find that, you know, shows like yours and when you've got things happening, you just, you don't see five crew people in a shot ever. I mean, it's just never um, you would just never know when you're watching it that there, there was actually anybody around besides you guys. It takes a I lot. Of, it. Yeah, it takes a lot of skill to make sure. <laughs> Obviously, when you're editing, you can edit you know certain things out, but you got to make sure that you have the shot and there isn't a bunch of crew in the shot, and it takes a lot of skill to to make all that happen. Yeah, we're we're really really pleased with who we work with, and I, I feel very fortunate that you know that's who we landed with. So, being an entrepreneur now, what other things do you do you feel like your your brain's always churning on new ideas and new things constantly or if anything new that you're working on now uh yeah so i can give you a little bit of history here but right now i've i'm working on a patent that uh, for a for a house that has an insulation value of r300 wow and the way that it's built could change the way houses are built um based on you know climate change and and how efficient we all need to be and you know moving toward you know cleaner energy and moving toward um efficient houses what do, what do you call them i don't know there's all kinds of buzzwords for everything now but yeah. let me just say that you can heat this thing with a candle Jeez. <laughs> you know that that's that's what i'm getting at you know so i've got an invention um, I've invested in some property in Texas. Um, I also have a, you know, a partnership and a venue down there. We've got a, um, another, um, strategic alliance that we're working with a, a steel manufacturing company to combine some wood and steel and, and create, you know, an industrial look. Yeah. Um, and you know, what a lot of people don't know is that the first three seasons of TV, I owned a, an, an insurance agency. Oh, wow. Yeah. So, you know, and I bought another smaller agency and 
you know, and then end up building that agency up. And in the fourth season, it was more of an ultimatum of like, look, you can't do both. Um, so I sold the insurance agency. Um, yeah, man, I've got a, I'm, I'm restoring a, uh, 1960s brick ranch house, making it a, um, you know, a, what, what do you call it? Mid-century modern look with, with some really clean lines and, and lighting and flooring and furniture. I've restored a 1934 Sears house. So I've always got something going on. Yeah. I've got so many things going on that I don't even know how to answer the question. I think part of that is my, my ADD. Yeah. <laughs> you know, just bouncing from things to things. I'm just so excited about all the things that are, that are happening. Yeah. So I've always got something going on. I, I love positive energy. I love, I love the positivity in the world and I'm always searching for it. And so I've kind of got a, really it's a no asshole policy. I just don't have them in my life. You know, there's no reason to surround yourself with people that aren't kind. Yeah. And so, you know, that, that again, I've got great family and, you know, I'm fortunate enough to have a TV show. And, um, when I go out in public, I want to have fun. I want to be positive. I don't want to talk about things that are, that are going to bring me down. Um, now look, life happens and people get sick and people die, but let's celebrate their lives and let's have let's just turn this around. You know what I mean? Let's enjoy ourselves a while. Yeah, it's exactly. short. Exactly. So, what's it like now for you, just going out in public? Has that changed your life at all? Or is it, are people pretty uh, good with you and respect respectful? Or is it is it something that you've had to change your life a little bit? We've had to make some changes. Uh, my wife jokes about if, if I ever get depressed, all I need to do is go to Lowe's because somebody's going to be there to build me up. <laughs> <laughs> she says, I'll, I, I say, I have to go to, uh, I'll be right back. I've got to get some bolts at Lowe's. And she says, oh, are you feeling depressed today? <laughs> <laughs> That's great. So, yeah. And I'm like, well, maybe I'm feeling a little down. I need a little pick me up. So I'm going to go in public. Um, but you know, I think I think it goes back to what you were saying uh, about the relatability of who we are. And yesterday, I went to the State Fair of West Virginia, and so there's people from all over coming there. Yeah. And I didn't sign one single autograph. But what I did get was a lot of people saying, "Hey, Mark, love your show," and and never breaking stride. So people feel like that we're neighbors, and they're saying hello. And I love that. Yeah, You know, I really, really like the fact that people treat us as somebody that they know and want to say hi to more than they want to treat us as stars. Yeah. You know, I've actually had to tone myself down a little bit because, you know, I used to have this personality like I've got this um, when I was in the insurance uh, business and, and I had this little sign on my desk that says I'm kind of a big deal. You know, just making a joke, just getting people to relax and just kind of poking fun at myself and, and just being goofy. And now I have to be real aware of that because that could now come across as arrogance. So I've had to, I, I can't take that sign now because it, I have to yeah. take it down and put it somewhere else because that could be taken literally now. So I'm, I'm finding myself having to watch what I say and, and what I do, but um, I've always been a little loud. Yeah. Um, I, <laughs> I'll tell you a story if, if you don't mind. No, um, go ahead. So, so in terms of the fans, I mean, I have had some people that have been inappropriate. You know, they see my truck, and I, one time I took a my dog to the vet, and someone followed me to the to the vet, 
And I get out of the car and I take my dog in. My dog's sick, and the the, the, the guy comes in the in the vet, follows me in the door, and he said, "Hey, Mark." He said, uh, "I hate to bother you. I'm not stalking you or anything, but um, I saw your truck in town, and I interrupted. I said, "Hey, buddy, um, you followed me to my vet <laughs> from from town," and and he said, "Yeah, I'm not. Uh, believe me, I'm not stalking you. I just wanted to see if we could get a picture and." I said, man, this is the very definition of stalking. And if you don't pull a dog or a cat out of your car, I'm going to whip your ass because you're intruding in my life. Yeah. And, that, you know, you have to get real. He said, well, you're not that way on the show. And I said, nobody's following me around in my truck on the show, you know, wanting to go to my vet with me. You know, I mean, you're, you're intrusive here. And so I think that there are very few of those. But I was going to tell you the story about being in high school and, you know, I, I took this chemistry class and it was for smart kids. And, and I wasn't a straight A student. I was a very average B student yeah. and C student. And, and my chemistry teacher, she said, you can take this. It was advanced chemistry. And, and I said, I don't want to, I don't want to do it. I want out of your class. So she gives us a test and I put my name on it and I fell asleep and, and I turned the paper in with my name and slobber. Uh, all over the paper, you know, just wet. And because I fell asleep. And so she gives me a D minus. And I said, Mrs. Kelly, I didn't do anything here. Why did you give me a D? And she said, well, Mark, you're, I want to tell you something. If if you just try in my class, I promise you, I will not fail you. I just need you to try hard. And I said, you know, wow, that's a pretty good guarantee. You're not going to get an F going in there. Yeah. And I said, okay, I'll try. And then she took me to the side and she said, Mark, Bo, I'm going to tell you something. You will never, you will never baffle the world with your brilliance, but you might just dazzle it with your bullshit. <laughs> and now I've got a, now I've got a TV show. <laughs> That's fabulous. <laughs> well, those words to live by right there. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks for, thanks for my teacher for realizing, you know, uh, for, for calling me out in high school, you know, yeah, <laughs> you, yes, he predicted it. I'm not eat up with brains, but man, I sure do think I was boxed. <laughs> oh, that's fabulous. So what, whenever you get a chance to have some downtime, what do you like to do when you're need to get away from it all? I spend time, you know, in a kayak or walking in the woods. Um, you know, I've got this little hammock that I'll carry up into the state park or into a state forest and, and I'll just sit and I'll take a nap and just kind of unwind with my shoes off and, and listen to water and, and nature. I mean, we're surrounded by, it's essentially a rainforest here in West Virginia. So it's, there's no shortage of places to go. Yeah. And I can completely get away and just feel like I've been gone for, you know, a week's vacation. And then, you know, my family is really important. So we, you know, we do take vacations. We'll go spend some time at a lake or, um, you know, visit uh, family and, and hang out with them. So, you know, I, I think that I've been able to maintain a balance and a level of grounded groundedness that, you know, keeps me going. Sometimes you have to just get away from everything and kind of oh, reset. 
Yeah, you know, I mean, I do what everybody else does too. I binge watch Netflix with my wife, you know, way more than I should. We'll get in, hooked onto some show or, um, you know, I'll go out and pass football with my son or play basketball or whatever, you know, whatever he wants to do. We'll kayak the rivers. It doesn't matter. I think as long as there's, as long as I'm present, yeah. that's all my wife has ever asked for. She's like, look, I know you work hard. I know you're going to be gone some, but when you're here, just be present. Yeah. And that's the best advice that anyone's ever given me. And I think, you know, to her credit, you know, without her, I wouldn't be in this position. I would still be going crazy and probably in some institution right now yeah. <laughs> with a bunch of, I'd, yeah, I'd be the guy, you know, I'd be the guy with the crazy ideas that, that, um, won't come to fruition for another 15 or 20 years, but I could say, I told you so Yeah. <laughs> while I'm in a mental hospital. <laughs> <laughs> so do you, do you watch any, as far as other shows, um, in your genre, anything on HDTV or DIY, any, any of those channels? Is there, do you have a favorite show? Uh, that's one of those fixer upper type shows or anything like that. Is there anything that you enjoy watching? Um, you know, now that I'm in this business, um, I can tell when people are being produced yeah. and it's really hard for me to watch TV yeah. um, because I can tell the moments that aren't genuine. And so um, I have become friends with some different hosts yeah. um, just kind of reaching out and saying, Hey, you know, how's it going? And what, what did you go through in season one? And, and I've talked with other people that'll call and, and be able to give them some advice on how to, monetize the exposure and and whatever but as far as you know watching other shows man it's really hard and the other thing is when i when i watch tv i want to be entertained yeah and um you know it's we're fairly entertaining yeah <laughs> with amongst ourselves and so you know it's hard for me to be entertained with something that is overproduced uh, i feel like that the, the the value the production value has taken away from the authenticity of who they're who they're showing so I don't even watch my own show anymore, you know, because I was there the whole time. I prefer to have the memories that I had. Yeah. Um, you know, people are always asking me about that. Like, what's your most favorite thing? And I can't really say what the most favorite building is or what we've done because I remember the experiences. I remember how hot it was or how hard it was or how cold it was and, and the, the people that were there. And, you know, so that's more of, of my game. When I sit down to watch TV, I want to be entertained with something mindless that makes me laugh and or evokes some type of emotion. Yeah, it makes perfect sense. I was going to ask you, I'm, I'm Canadian. I'm up here in Canada. And one of our uh, comedian I work with, the television guy that I do a lot of work with, his name is Red Green. Do you know who that is? Do you ever see the Red Green show? Not. Okay. So then I'll skip over that question. He's, uh, he's kind of one of these... Uh, fixer up your guys up here in Canada. He's, but he's had a, a TV show on uh, PBS for years throughout the States. And, and uh, I was curious if you knew who he was or not. Yeah. You know, yeah. I don't I, Now I feel like I've got to go have some poutine and, and find out who red green is. <laughs> <I know. laughs> um, yeah. So I want to say this about Canada. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, we, in the U S we're, we're always, um, you know, there's been this, uh, we're, we're number one, you know, this kind of a overall attitude and everyone else is living in our shadow, um, sort of a mentality. And, and so I've, I've had the same supplier, uh, from Canada 
yeah. uh, that has supplied us with some timber frames and some barn wood for 20 years. Wow. And every person that I've ever met from Canada has been super nice. And every time that I've gone up there, it's really clean. Uh, people are friendly. I just, I love Canada. Awesome. Um, yeah. I mean, every truck driver is super nice and it's, I'm, I'm like, man, I'm yet to meet a bad Canadian. Well, there's so a, there's a few I of might, them, but not, not many. <laughs> well, I might make it a quest. Yeah. <laughs> I might make it a road trip. There's a new TV show right there. <laughs> yeah, I want, a, I want a TV show to see if I can find an annoying Canadian. Because <laughs> I just haven't found them yet. <laughs> I'm not sure if you saw the pictures or not, but uh, I run a, uh, a dinner theater here in Ontario with my family. And, and we've converted, uh, we live on a farm that has a, uh, uh, it's well over a 200 year old, um, timber frame barn. Uh, we converted that into, uh, our dinner theater. So it's has all the, you know, all the original wood and has the old style rack lifters and, um, everything in it. So it's, uh, if you're ever up this way, love for you to see it. I think you would find it super, super interesting. That's a, and it's a fun time. It's a great venue and we have music shows six days a week and, uh, we just have a great time. So I've seen the pictures. Yeah. I did. I've, I've, I've I took a look at the photos, and it's an incredible venue. It is really spectacular, and I'll definitely stop by if I get a chance to be in that area. Awesome. Well, I've taken a lot of your time. I uh, I really appreciate you uh, spending the time and having a chat, and it was uh, lots of fun. And I wish you uh, good luck with all the uh, new adventures you have going on, and the uh, I look forward to seeing all the new stuff and continue to watching. With what, what season are we in now with the show? We're filming season nine. Oh, wow. Um, and after this, um, Chip and Joanna Gaines have some stake in a DIY network. So, you know, that there's speculation that they don't know the name of it, but DIY network will change over uh, since the acquisition of Discovery. Yeah. Um, DIY network will become, I don't know what the title of it be, so let's just say Magnolia Network or whatever. Um, so, yeah, we don't know what's going to happen, whether we'll um, stay on um, the network or if we'll move to Discovery or if they'll just say, thank you for your time. So we we don't know yet uh, what that's going to be. And uh, we're just all hopeful we can continue the momentum that we have. And But, man, I've got one philosophy is, is, is work hard, be kind, and take pride in what you do. And I think from there, somebody's going to pay you to be doing what you're doing. And we're just going to keep on doing our thing. Well, that's great. That's a good attitude. And I mean, I hope the show continues. Uh, I think, uh, you've got a very strong fan base and, and our, or it's funny. I was talking to our, our caterer here at our, our theater the other day is mentioning, uh, that I was going to have a chat with you. And she was like, Oh my gosh, that's the only show I watch. I said, I get up. Uh, I think she says she gets up at three or four in the morning to, to start work. And up here, your, sh- your show comes on, uh, obviously it's a repeat at, at that time, you know, early in the morning as a repeat and says, that's the only show I ever have a chance to watch. And, and, uh, she absolutely loves it. So that's, that's just awesome to hear here. Let me give you my cell number and you can have her call me. I'm just kidding. man. I'll let her know you said that. And I said, Oh, I forgot to write it down. (laughs) <laughs> yeah just just write this down on the and let everybody know here's my cell number i know <laughs> everyone call right now yeah 
<laughs> I did get to speak to uh, Matthew McConaughey the other day, and uh, man, that guy's just as cool and on the phone as he is, you know, in any movie he's ever done. Oh, that's awesome. <laughs> but but when his phone number came up, it was um, his agent said it's going to come up and it's going to say unknown. <laughs> yeah, I bet it does. <laughs> and I'm like, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so I've learned I learned a trick how to how to call for my cell phone without showing who I am. You gotta watch nowadays. <laughs> yeah. Well thank you for having me. I, I I really feel fortunate and um that you would consider, you know, me as being worthy of being on a podcast and, and also to help me, you know, kind of spread the word of um we're not <laughs> people in West Virginia and throughout Appalachia are nice. And also, I want to say one more thing. Yeah. It's called Appalachia, not Appalachia. Okay. <laughs> really? <laughs> yeah, it is. And, and that's how we know you're not from here is when you say, I, I love the Appalachian. <laughs> it's we for, say, well, great. You know, we move on. <laughs> it's same for here. We're close to Toronto. So it's, it's always, if you know, if someone will come and say, we're going to Toronto and say, no, it's Toronto. It's not Toronto. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, yeah. Same type it's of thing. Yeah, yeah, it's like that all over. <laughs> yeah. Thank you. All right, I'll look you up when I get to Toronto. Sounds good. <laughs> Toronto. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks. Yeah. yeah, bye now. Yeah.